0: This is RDQI. Hey, Dave, did you have a happy childhood?
1: Uh, well, I think you know the answer to that question because you and I, uh, were together for a lot of childhood.
0: That is fair enough. Yep.
1: But yes, I, I definitely had a happy childhood. Um, I think a lot of that was due to luck and circumstance. Um, you know, you and I both grew up in sort of, uh, affluent families, affluent suburbs, good schools. Um, right. Yep safe areas, you know, you you and I used to just run around, um, outside all summer long from, you know, sun up to sun, well, to sun up to well after sundown. Mm -hmm. And our parents really didn't worry about that. And, you know, growing up, I just sort of assumed that's just how life is. And, you know, obviously the more your mind, the more you, you get out into the world and meet other people and you expand your mind, you realize like, that's, that's really lucky. Yeah, right. Really not lucky.
0: Always the case. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I had a great childhood, I think. Um, but I was asking because it was kind of interesting. Like, do you have any like weird, you know, those memories you have, those weird, quirky ones that like just never leave your brain? Do you have any memories of it like that, like from your childhood or
1: something? Weird memories that don't really leave my brain. Uh, can you get more specific?
0: um okay i can hey here we go i have a good memory the first so i used to live in this cul-de-sac in the neighborhood right Mm -hmm. and i just moved to this area uh this is summer after third second grade yep summer after second grade for us and i remember you and a couple of the guys from the the group that we ended up hanging out with playing this game in my cul-de-sac and it was the dumbest game i've ever seen in the world but because (laughs) i excuse me huh? <laughs> oh, come on. Well, for listeners, so you know, these young boys were riding in a circle around a cul-de-sac and someone was it and their job was to throw, like, was it like a roller, like a a wheel from a rolling chair? They were trying to throw it through the other person's bicycle spokes. Was that the game, Dave?
1: Yes. Uh-huh. Okay.
0: It was a dumb game. I get it. Like, it's a great dumb game, but it's a dumb game. And And I distinctly remember like the the warmth of the sun on the window that i was watching through like that is what i remember not the, not even really anything about the game i actually don't even remember i know you were there and i know kevin was there but i couldn't remember anyone else in particular so like it's a weird quirky memory you know and i i sometimes wonder like do those memories like how much do they really i mean obviously that one doesn't have a ton of shaping power on my life probably but I bet you there's a lot of childhood experiences that really shape who you are as a person. I mean, would you go with
1: that maybe? Oh, a hundred percent. Um, my mom has an expression. It's, it's not her expression. I don't know who coined it first cause I've heard it a number of times, but I remember hearing it first from her. And so I, I just always think of it as my mom's expression, which also kind of feeds into what we're talking about. <laughs> right? Um, but the, the, the idea of the 20 year video, and that the stuff that happens to you in your first 20 years, particularly the stuff that leaves that indelible mark like you were talking about, you know, the, the, one of those memories that will stick with you forever, mm-hmm. um, they influence so much of who we are and how we think and what we do and what's important to us later in life. Absolutely. Um, I'll give you a good example because this is something that I was talking with my my dad about Um so my my dad is uh, he a self-described bohemian. Um, you know his, his uh, father, my grandpa grew up in the depression. Um, that my dad's side of the family was uh, not one of the lucky ones in the depression, so you know, tough times. Mm. Um, and my grandpa because of that saved everything, every nail, every screw, every fleck of dust just in case <laughs> he needed it and he passed that on to my dad and my dad has tried to pass that on to me. You know, I grew up in this like you save everything. You don't ever throw anything away because you never know when you're going to need it. Mm. Um and I hate that. <laughs> I I intellectually I believe that that I I don't want to do that. I hate clutter. I you know, I, I try to to live my life in a mini- as minimally as I can, and I'm, I'm happier when I have fewer things. However, I to this day cannot throw anything away without a tremendous feeling of guilt. <laughs> and sure. there is no logic to that guilt besides the fact that my 20 year video is. Why are you throwing this away? Sure this is not how we do things.
0: Yeah. I mean, would you, I mean, it's almost like a, a family based kind of uh, an ethic basically
1: how you keep and
0: preserve things. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. I mean, it's funny. My wife has her family or her mom's side, similar story. Um, depression was not good for them and the family. Um, my mother-in-law grew up in, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say abject poverty, but I would say poverty. Um, of course, she didn't know that at the time. It's, it's fascinating to talk to people who live through those time periods. It's interesting stuff. But I was asking because, you know, you and I were the other, other week, we were talking about the, you know, the. of course, for some reason, we talk about the economy all the time. We were talking about the great resignation event that we're, you know, it's been to- coined, the term that we've seen over the summer and continuing where millions upon millions of Americans are quitting their jobs every month. I think it's three months in a row of last time I checked. It was three months in a row of like record-breaking uh, people quitting their job, and that's that's fascinating. And it was like, and I know you and I were kind of trying to rack our brains, like, wait, how does this make any sense? Like, what is going on? And we were trying to list examples, and that got me to thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be a part of a generation? Because I think generations, you know, like us millennials or Gen X or the baby boomers of the silent generation, they all have different qualities and characteristics to them. And I kind of wonder if those qualities and characteristics shape the way that they make that they make decisions. I'm guessing you would go with the sentence. If I said that your experience defines how you make decisions.
1: 100%.
0: Yeah. But I was, I was looking into it and as far as like economic research is concerned, there is not a, ton of data about how experiences actually affect people's purchasing decisions or how they think about the economy. And I thought that was crazy.
1: Uh, well, I, how do you mean? Because I, I can't, I, I can't imagine maybe, maybe the research hasn't been done, but if it, if it were different generations could be seen making very different decisions in aggregate right mm-hmm. because um you know after well that's a that's a bad example because i don't know this for a fact but i but i would assume after you know the the people who lived through the great depression had a very different take on savings and investing than our parents did and that we do today mm-hmm. you know one of the one of the um Um, criticisms thrown at millennials. And there's obviously a lot more to this. Uh, So this is a a broad statement and it's not comprehensive. Um, But I think there is some truth to the fact that millennials on the, on the whole, invest less and save less than the generation before them. Now there's, you know, there's a lot of mitigating factors like there's the, the debt issue with millennials, blah, blah, <laughs> uh-huh. But, but I think even removing that from the equation in general, our generation invests less because we see less value in it.
0: Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it's funny. I knew we were going to talk about this. So I, I dove through um, a couple of papers that the Pew Research Center put out. Um, and, it's interesting. I mean, so you, what you're saying about investments from the, um, the silent generation, the generation that experienced the Great Depression. Well, actually, that's not entirely true because the silent generation began with the Great Depression. So it would have been the generation previous. Um, but even still growing up through the Depression, basically what Pew Research found in, and this other uh, researcher who we're about to introduce found was that, it, yes, people were less inclined to invest in stocks after they had experienced the Great Depression. But if you went to the bonds market, there was incredible fervor for investing through the bond market. So, Which and this is a h-
1: historically very safe investment.
0: Right, and and I think, um, I mean, to keep talking about this, I have to bring in this researcher who uh, kind of, I mean, has caught my mind this whole week, it's crazy. Um, her name is Ulrika Mamendire I want to say momendier, but she's German, so I'm sure it's Maumendier. Um, She is a professor out at UC Berkeley in economics, and she um, she basically jumped into a conversation with a fellow researcher of hers who is also German. And they had a conversation about, like, why are Germans so hypersensitive to inflation? Right, which you and I—it's obvious—and obviously, two Germans talking about it, it's obvious. So, if you—if you are if not familiar with German history, which I wouldn't be terribly surprised if plenty of people aren't—before, after World War One, Germany owed the world a, a ton of money. It was after the Treaty of Versailles, Germany had to pay repay war reparations, right? In an attempt to actually pay off those reparations, the Weimar Republic, which we know now today is Germany. Uh, just printed a bunch of money and then you had runaway inflation. I think um, prices were quadrupling every month for about a year and a half. Like, just think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> if you're, if a Coke cost you a dollar in March, then it cost you four dollars in April. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about how that would escalate and how valueless your money becomes. And, yeah. and it became. And we're not here to talk about inflation necessarily, but it became so invaluable that it was better to burn the money than to try and buy wood, right? But her focus on the psychological effects and why is there, like how does like a, a trauma, if you will, how does it shape a generation's way of perceiving the world? I thought that was fascinating that she was drawing that, um, parallel. Now, of course, being American-based researcher, she didn't try to explain, um, you know, how the Deutschmark plummeted, and I don't even think it was the Deutschmark back. And it doesn't matter. She wasn't interested in talking about that. She talked about the, um, the Great Depression, basically. So, and she used that as her baseline. And she brought up some really fascinating points, um, kind of about how cohorts of people, which we might call a generation like respond collectively, which I think really quick, we should just say that all a generation is, is an arbitrary like data set that's created so we can study something. Like it's all made up, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a decent, there's usually a decent reason for the spans that are set up, but it's, it's completely fictitious so that people can perform research and see if there really is difference between time segments of people. And essentially, what is really cool about um, generational studies is that if you contemplate age, you you can understand two things about anyone, which is where they are in the life cycle, like as a human, you know, are you a teenager? Um, are you having a family? Are you thinking of retiring? You know, all those things can be more or less correlated to age. Obviously, there's going to be wide variations, but you know, more or less. Mm-hmm. But you also understand that that person at that age is a membership, is in membership of a cohort, basically, like they are, whether or not they want to be a part of, you know, a bunch of peers, basically, a bunch of people they live with. And by studying how those different cohorts think, you can draw some interesting conclusions. That's the whole point of generational research. Um, And it's somewhat arbitrary, but it does lead to some interesting things. That's for sure.
1: It definitely does. The The first thought that I had is, first of all, I, I feel like for as much as I think about uh, generational behavior, I don't know if I've ever stepped back and thought, well, why? What defines Gen Z versus a millennial? But it really is just the environmental factors around a group of people, how a group of people grew up, what their 20-year video was. And how that influences their behavior in every, you know, in every facet, and it's not just economic behavior too. I mean, I think we've talked about this on this podcast, but I I work with a number of, um, you know, Gen Z is starting to get, come into the workforce, um, yeah. and I work with a number of them, and something that is almost universal is a significantly or a significant lack of eye contact as opposed to anyone else I work with. Hmm. And I think this is my own hypothesis, but I think this is just due to, you know, the fact that Gen Z is really the first generation that is that, that are true digital natives that grew up with a phone, you know, from the time they can remember. And, you know, as a kind of a coping mechanism, you can always look at your phone to kind of, ex- like, pull yourself out of an uncomfortable situation.
0: Right. Yep.
1: And, and and I think that sort of translates into you know this this just the lack of eye contact. And it was really disconcerting at first until I realized like this is just sort of how this generation acts. And as they as they progress through the workforce and become more and more, you know, the generation that controls things and you know us millennials get sort of pushed out. Eye contact might be seen as weird, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Lack of eye contact right now is a bad thing. Uh, will it be forever? Right, right. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. But I think it is that that experience that that really kind of defines it. I also think it's it's really hard to translate that experience from one generation to the next. I think that a generation tries. But there's a huge difference between living through the Great Depression and being a child of a parent who lived through the Great Depression to being a grandchild who w- was born into an, a very affluent world. And I've heard stories about the Depression. I have never, ever experienced anything like it. <laughs> right.
0: Man, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's something that uh, Ulrika brought up, actually, in this little lecture of hers that I watched. She's talking about how like the neoclassical paradigm for um, decision making in economics. That was a very, very wordy sentence. But the paradigm for that in the neoclassical sense is that humans are rational and they'll make rational decisions economically. Right. So if I'm if I'm talking to you and you're like, hey, I can give you a cup of coffee today. Or if you come back tomorrow, I'll give you a pound of coffee beans and then you can make 20 cups of coffee. The rational human, if they don't need that cup of coffee in the moment, will wait till the next day to get more, right? You know, deferred. Uh, they'll defer basically to get, have a gain long term.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right, and I have I, problems with that. <laughs> well, I
0: mean, I have, I have a million problems with that. I don't think humans are rational. First off, <laughs> um, that's my first yeah. part. Um, but that's what she's saying, is she's saying that through that paradigm essentially if you've read about an economic depression you should have the same decision making power as someone who experienced the economic depression and i think there's an inherent it's just false that can't be true yeah (laughs) there's no way you can (laughs) you can't just read a book and be like oh i understand how that went like no you don't like you don't understand everything that went with it you know i mean it'll be the case for the generation now when their generation behind them they'll be like you guys didn't have the pandemic you don't know what it was like to grow up in that you know they'll have that experience, potentially. So I'm think i glad you brought that up, because I don't think, I think your experience as a human on this earth in your day-to-day life will shape how you make decisions, and you're not always going to make that decision rationally, at least from an economic perspective. So what she's trying to do in her work is bring in, um, I think she called it psychological realism to economic modeling, basically. And it's all, she's phenomenal. If you're interested, check her out. Um, But... It's obviously, you know, edge case behavioral economics. It's not exactly right light reading. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> I I think you're dead on. I mean, like, just take a take my example of you know my grandfather and my father saving everything. Um, I don't like saving things because I have because the stuff that I've saved, I've never in my life went back and used it and thought, oh, like I'm really glad I held on to this. No, like I just buy a new thing. I don't like, uh oh, I need to put this shelf back together. I better go scrounge up all the screws I've ever saved. Like, no, that's, but, but, and so that shapes my, my opinion. Like I, I understand why my father and grandfather saved things, but I don't really feel the same way. Hmm because it's not an experience that I've that I've ever had and I, I you know i i i hesitate to say empirically because i don't know if you can prove such things but but i think i mean i've had a number of i've been fortunate enough to know a number of people who have lived in in very um, stark contrast to the generation before or after them. So, for example, you know, I, I worked in the Czech Republic for a number of years, and I met a lot of people born after 1989, and a lot of people born before 1989. And 1989, 1989
0: is, be, being the fall of communism in the area, correct?
1: Yep. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, one one of my favorite examples is I had a friend who sent me a Christmas card. And uh, she was she was born in 1989. Um, and obviously her parents were you know lived through communism. She never did ever. And in the picture, it's a Christmas card, mind you. She's smiling, her parents stoic, stone-faced, no smiles. <laughs> and the reason why is, You'd never wanted to appear under communism the way that it functioned in the Czech Republic and, frankly, the entire Soviet Union. Is if you appeared to be, you know, happier than your neighbor, you were going to get singled out and bad things would happen to you.
0: Right. Yeah. You're getting knocks on your door in the middle of the night when that happens. Yeah.
1: Right. Now that's translated down. To the generation the next generation but unless you really experienced your neighbor smiling in a photo and then getting dragged out in the middle of the night right. you don't really care it doesn't really mean anything to you
0: right it's yeah it's like theoretical knowledge at that point you know it's not lived knowledge
1: and i wonder if this is the foundation of the like the term history repeats itself you know because you think of If you ask anybody who lived under communism, hey, do you think communism might be a good idea, they would, you know, they'd get out of their chair and start trying to fight you, you know, because, (laughs) like, they don't care about the theory. They just remember the horror of the application. Mm. And yet, you you know, there's plenty of younger people out there today that are like, you know what? Communism sounds pretty good. Like, I think this is a good (laughs) idea. Mm Mm-hmm. Same thing with, you know, nationalism and, you know, uh, like some of the things that are happening with populists, some of the populist leaders today are, are spouting rhetoric directly from the pages of figures like Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler. Sure. And anybody who, you know, experienced kind of the atrocities that those two people kind of committed Really look at populist leaders with it. You don't need to waffle. They definitely
0: committed it. Yeah, they didn't. Kind of. It was. <laughs> that was a softball, Dave. <laughs> Sorry, you, I'm you trying, missed that one.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to keep this as apolitical as I possibly. Can.
0: I got you. I got you. Yep.
1: <laughs> uh, but there are people who are looking at those populist leaders spouting, you know, rhetoric directly from the the speeches of those people and saying, "Yeah, you know what? You uh, you're making some sense." And. I wonder if, you know, history is sort of doomed to repeat itself because you have these things that happen. The generation that experiences them learns from it and never wants to do it again. But then three or four generations down the line, that experience is lost.
0: Right. Right. And it's just been beaten into you as a kid. I mean, like you and I have both traveled to Germany. Um, if you're ever in a group of Germans in Germany and you want to mellow the mood, just bring up the Holocaust, you know, like it's a really quick way to damper anyone's happy feelings. Because as a student in Germany, you, ha- you have to go to a concentration camp by a certain age. Like you, There are a lot of things you have to do as part of your national nationalized education that basically encourage you to remember, like, this can't happen again, is basically the mantra. Like, we don't repeat this mistake is the idea. Yeah. Um, so, but it, I mean, how many generations on until like the messaging gets stale and the people don't understand why it's so valuable? You know, I think, I think that is just, that's a human tendency to forget the meaning of something essentially.
1: That's such a good example too, because Germany, I think has, has done one of the most, um, kind of, uh, progressive, bold national, um, initiatives to make sure that something like the Holocaust never happens again. I mean, you are exactly right. Like, even young, young Germans who, you know, have no memory of anything like what happened in World War II will get very, very sober when discussing the Holocaust because the, you know, German national education system is so fervent that, like, there's a tremendous sense of national guilt, which is I think is a good thing. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to take that experiential, um, experiential experience. (laughs) They're trying to take the experience and make it as visceral and real as possible for subsequent generations so that history does not repeat itself. And yet, if you read the news in Germany, I mean, there's, there's a small but still very vocal alt-right minority Mm -hmm. that, uh, don't you know they're they don't they're care. trying to yeah. repeat the cycle kind of uh, yeah I and mean, they won't because a lot of the you know a lot of Hitler's rise to power came from devastating economic uh, issues that were happening between World War one and world War two right um, which really exacerbated things but but see I think oh
0: that's fascinating because I think that's what you know it's kind of like the intersection of what we're talking about, right? Like generations exist and generations typically are defined by a great tragedy, right? Like the generational breakdowns, the gaps typically fall that way. The silent generation, it starts in 1928. I wonder what happened in 1928 in the U S you know, it's like, Oh, it's, you know, the dust bowl, the great depression, everything began then, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, the baby boomers, I mean, their calamity event was world war two had just ended, you know? So it was a, it was a tragedy, but had been moving past the tragedy, you know, and there was a a moment of, uh, well, it was a boom, right? So there was economic and social growth in a lot of ways. Um, but it's so, it's so fickle and, um, not nefarious, but difficult to deal with. So when I was doing some reading, preparing for this, something caught my eye that was crazy. So the silent generation, right? Starts in 1928 ends in 1945. That's that, about 15 to 20 year period that generally defines a, uh, a generation. And it was first called the silent generation actually in 1951. It hadn't been named until then, right? So it had, it had, every silent generation member had been born by the time the silent generation was defined. But here's how it was defined. It was defined in an article. Give me one second. In Time magazine. And here's the quote. The most startling fact about the younger generation is its silence. With some rare exceptions, expe- ex- <clears throat> the most startling fact about the younger generation is its silence. With some rare exceptions, youth is nowhere near the rostrum, like, you know, arguing in the courts. Or uh never mind. <clears throat> By comparison with the flaming youth of their fathers and mothers, which I guess the flaming youth must have been like the roaring 20s people, I guess um but their fathers and yeah. mothers today's younger generation is a still small flame it does not issue manifestos make speeches or carry posters it has be, it has been called the silent generation which is like okay that makes some sense but then if you dig it like another layer like what was going on in 1951 and you can if if you don't remember mccarthy was raging in congress and any act of not pure American patriotism could get you into you know, a hearing at Congress to find out if you're a communist or not. So yeah. you had all these contributing factors like, hey, you were born during an economically depressed time. You probably came of age during World War II or nearly around then. And then once things were actually going well, you couldn't be politically active unless you were towing the party line through and through. And you can see mm-hmm. why it's like, oh yeah, they were the silent generation. Yeah, I find that fascinating. Or like our generation, I think the tragedy would probably be 9/11. Like that's the moment that um I would say anyone who's a millennial remembers to some degree. Even towards the tail end you might not have cog you know remembered it, but you would've been impacted by the effects I, of it.
1: I I don't know. I I disagree with that. Maybe maybe the older millennial generation but for for me or at least if I just take myself as an example right I think I was in 7th grade when that happened no I was 8th grade I okay. was in Mr. Richardson's math class I remember very acutely I don't think I truly understood the implication of that because I don't remember feeling fear if something like that happened now I would feel fear
0: yeah that's true but everything about our life was shaped differently because of nine eleven. Every time we went to airports, ever again, we've been submitted to very thorough security. Ex- well, <laughs> I don't know how thorough they actually are, but uh, they feel like they're very thorough, especially when they're scanning you on a millimetric level.
1: Um, I don't know. You ever been through TSA Pre? <laughs> uh,
0: I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Let's just hang precheck's it up now. the way to go.
1: You just sort of walk in and wave. Hey guys. <laughs> hey. See you later. But I mean, like, okay, cool.
0: 9-11, I mean, that shaped everything. We we went to war because of it. We fought two wars as a country because of 9-11. Um, many of our brothers and sisters in this American cohort went in physically, like, actually fought wars for that. Um, well, uh, not for, but because of the consequences of 9-11. Um, yeah. And then I think the second really big thing was 2008-2009, the financial panic. The Great Recession. I, that shapes. See, us I would immensely. argue that
1: has. I would argue that had more of a lasting impact because I, I frankly, and uh, you know, I'm sure you might have examples, but I'm I'm struggling to find examples of how, like, what's a behavioral change that happened to our generation because of 9/11. 2008 absolutely people are in our generation are the first generation who are very skeptical about buying a home which is weird because if you talk to anybody born you know anybody before this generation they're like look real estate always appreciates it is the way to build wealth in this world in in America at least whereas uh, but you know in 2008 was a blip okay but our generation like that doesn't hold true. <laughs> <laughs> no, Bu- no, buying a house is like gosh, there's a fifty fifty shot. We you know it, we lose the boat, um, and so we're you know very skeptical about dumping a ton of money and, and incurring a bunch of debt to buy an asset that could you know all of a sudden implode. I don't I don't see the same like nine eleven. I mean I can think of things like I remember a time when. You know, I went to California as a kid, and and my and and I got to go right up in the in the cockpit with the pilot for a little bit, like sit on the pilot's lap. You uh-huh. know,
0: <laughs> <An experience laughs> which obviously no one will ever have again.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. But I wouldn't say that that you know like has really fundamentally changed. Maybe maybe we're more aware of terrorism.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I would say levels of trust, just the ability to okay, trust people. That's, I think, yeah, I, fell off immediately.
1: I hear you there. I hear you there. Like, who can we trust yeah.
0: anymore, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, think about the the level of freedom that you, going back to the very beginning of this conversation, the level of freedom you and I enjoyed as children. We just, we at a very young age, were allowed to just leave the house at seven in the morning, go to swim practice, and do whatever we wanted outside, wherever we wanted, all day, and we came home, like, roughly around nighttime.
0: Yeah running through people's backyards, playing hide-and-seek, doing a bunch of things that's like, if you did that now, I'd be like, are you going to get shot? Like, what's happening? You know, just the yeah. culture is so
1: different. Uh-huh. Parents don't do not do that at all anymore. I remember when when the pandemic first hit, um, I was driving through the neighborhood on the first nice day, like in April, and I saw just big groups of kids running around outside, and I was like, what is weird about this? And I realized, like, <laughs> oh, this is this like they're all home they're all looking for something to do but prior to this pandemic kids didn't play outside in gr- maybe you know at the at very scheduled events like you saw them at soccer fields for the soccer game mm-hmm. or at the playground with parents but not just roaming around but that was our entire childhood
0: yeah <laughs> it 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 shaped us in so many ways 100% What I think is interesting too is that the you know, to broadly speak again, in these generational terms, that ge- different generations have different opinions about things that are, you know, across the board. Again, huge broad generalizations, but the data kind of bears it out. So I was I was flipping through Pew's uh, research on some things, and it's interesting because uh, let's take two topics that are that shows that generations are different, right? So the first one, they're both controversial, so it's perfect. The first one is same-sex marriage, right? Basically, generations have been asked, uh, do you support or are you against? Like, yes, no, that's it. It's the only thing you can answer for this question in regards to same-sex marriage. And as you would guess, as you would guess, as you would guess, millennials, 60% of them say they support. Gen X, 55%. Boomers, 48%. And the silent generation, 38%. It's like, okay, that kind of, that makes sense. You know, like a new idea, a younger generation would be more apt to receive that idea positively, I think, and see how to how it could be good for society, right? Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not that's true is not what I'm saying. We're not here to talk about same-sex marriage, um, but the other controversial one is marijuana, right? Again, 69% of mar- uh, millennials support legalization of marijuana, 53% of Gen X, 52% of the boomers, surprisingly, and then 30% of the silent generation. But what I thought was interesting in this graph, and I'm no—I don't think I've sent you this, so you can't see it. But this data goes all the way back to 1969 for the marijuana legalization, and there's mm-hmm. gen, uh, but, 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 but the Boomer generation up until 1980. They were hovering around 50%. I'm saying like, yeah, we should legalize marijuana. Did you know that? No. But in the 80s. With a couple of presidents who were very very harsh on the drug or basically created the drug on war, uh, the drug on wars <laughs> but in the 19 <laughs> in the 1980s when we had a, a couple of presidents basically start the war on drugs and really um push a different line about how drugs should be used <laughs> in society all of a sudden that generation's support drops incredibly
1: well yeah there was a ton of propaganda that the government rolled out in support of this war on drugs.
0: And I think I think that's kind of going to what Ulrika is saying at the beginning, that our experiences really do shape what we, you know, like our economic choices and determine how we make decisions, right? Like if you're told something's terrible and it's going to ruin society and, you know, take uh, everyone to hell in a handbasket, like of course you're going to be like, well, I shouldn't do that. That's not a good idea. You know, it makes total sense. And I, I think... What we're seeing in the great resignation event, if you will, is that people are realizing that our work life is, is not what it used to be, and it has to change, therefore workers are trying to find different opportunities for work. And I think that's, I'm just so curious what's going to happen with that long term. <laughs>